0: Please open your Bible to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 18. Our passage for this morning is Matthew 18, 1 through 6. I had been planning on maybe preaching this passage after we got through 1 Corinthians 3, uh, but as I was starting to wrap up my sermon this week, I realized that I actually had half of two sermons, not one whole whole sermon, I know that may sound a little strange, but the long and the short of it is that I still have a ways to go uh, before I finish the next message in our passage. So instead of looking at this passage in two weeks, we're going to take a look at it today. Uh, We're currently talking about competition in the body of Christ and what this indicates about our ability to receive spiritual instruction. In this morning's passage, Jesus is going to show us how we ought to think when we're tempted to compete with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that passage, once again, is Matthew 18, 1 through 6. Over the past several weeks, we've been talking about pride and the role that it plays in hindering spiritual growth. But have you ever had what you might consider to be a legitimate reason to boast. Now just forget for a moment that you know what you know about the error of pride. I'd imagine you all know that none of us ultimately has anything that we can boast in, since everything that we do that is praiseworthy, whatever we are, it all comes from God. Pride, in this sense is never warranted. It's always a sin. What I mean, though, is have you ever done something, have you ever achieved something that is legitimately praiseworthy? And just to be clear, what the Bible, while the Bible says that we should never boast in who we are, that's not to say that it doesn't still encourage praise for things that are legitimately praiseworthy. Even Jesus indicates that he'll reward his disciples by proclaiming to them, well done, good and faithful servant. You go to Proverbs, and it actually even encourages humility with the idea that humility precedes praise. Uh, Proverbs 18.12, for instance, says, Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. Likewise, Proverbs 29.23 says, One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. So, yes, while pride is a sin, that doesn't mean that you can't still do things that are legitimately praiseworthy and worthy of honor. What I want to know is, have you ever done something like that? If so, then you know that while it is hard to avoid pride generally, it's most especially difficult when you've done something that's actually praiseworthy. That seems to be the issue the disciples are struggling with in this morning's passage. I know a lot of times when we see the disciples bickering over who among them is the greatest, uh, we sort of like to chuckle about them behind their back. (laughs) You know, I mean, how how dense could you be, right, to not get that lesson? When we do that, not only are we forgetting that we're standing on their shoulders and what Jesus taught them through their mistakes, but we're forgetting just how significant their quote-unquote achievements are. Keep in mind, they not only believed in Jesus when hardly anyone else had, they not not only bought in on the ground floor, so to speak, when it was incredibly unpopular and even dangerous to be associated with Jesus. But then on top of that, Jesus responds to their faith by entrusting them with some highly privileged information and even abilities. I mean, just take what's happened over the previous few chapters in this gospel. Matthew 10, for instance, Jesus sends out the twelve on a mission, on a special assignment, you could say. And as he sends them, he empowers them to perform some of the exact same kinds of miracles that he performed. Just, just let that sink in for a minute. Matthew 13, Jesus responds to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in Matthew 12. Uh, by speaking in parables. Basically, he starts disclosing additional truths about the kingdom in riddles that only the spiritual discerning can understand. And then he gives the disciples private lessons on the meaning of those parables. Again, privileged information. Matthew 15, the disciples assist Jesus in the feeding of the 5,000. Peter walks on water with Jesus shortly after that. And then... Jesus withdraws. He leaves Galilee, and he starts instilling some lessons in the disciples away from the crowds, in private. And if that weren't enough, Matthew 16, the disciples give a battle-tested profession of faith, and Jesus responds by telling them that they're going to form the foundation of his church. Peter goes on to correct Jesus immediately after that when he starts speaking about his death and resurrection for the first time. But I mean, come on, you can understand why he does that, can't you? Peter's feeling it. He's starting to think he's getting this stuff figured out, and and not for no reason. Jesus just told him he's starting to figure this stuff out. Of course, Jesus rebukes Peter for his correction, but right after that, he takes Peter, James, and John onto the Mount of Transfiguration, and he shows them his glory. I mean, can, can you feel the weight of all this? Can you start to see how they may, may start to think that they're pretty special? I mean, just put yourself in their shoes for a second. Imagine that you're the one walking down the dirt road, traveling across the Galilean countryside, and that man out in front of you is the Messiah. And you know he's the Messiah. You were there when John announced him to the rest of Israel. You've seen the signs and the wonders. He's the Christ. There's no doubt about it. And not only that, but the reason why you're traveling with him is because he came and called you specifically. He taught you personally. He's shown an interest in you, spent time talking to you. You've had multiple face-to-face, probably even one-on-one conversations with him. He's explained things to you, shown you things that he's not shown anyone else outside of that circle of his closest disciples. Crowds come, come to greet him. And then after he sends the crowds away, he takes you with him. And then not only that, but he gives you a measure of his authority. He equips you to perform some of the very same miracles that he performs and then he tells you that he's chosen you so that you can serve as his special envoy at the establishment of his kingdom what effect do you think that 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 all of that would have on you how do you think all of that would change you i mean do you think that maybe just maybe you might start to you know, get a big head a little bit? you think you might start to think that you're just a little bit special? Well, that's what happens with Jesus' disciples in today's passage. And again, you can't necessarily blame them. I think every single one of us would start to become at least a little bit puffed up. I think we do start to get pretty proud of ourselves and over a lot less than what's happening between Jesus and the disciples. That's what happens here in Matthew 18. The disciples see all this authority that Jesus has given them. They take these declarations where he talks about how they're going to serve as the foundation of his church. And they naturally start to wonder, so which one of us is the greatest? I mean, it's clear we're all pretty special. But who's the most special among us? Which one of us is the greatest? And in today's passage, Jesus answers. He tells them who is the greatest. Not only that, but he tells them how to become the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Let's go ahead and find out what he says. I've entitled today's message, uh, The Christian's Guide to Greatness. That's what Jesus explains in this next lesson on discipleship. He explains the meaning of greatness in the kingdom of heaven and how to become great in God's eyes. I would assume that's something that all of us want, all of us desire. So let's read the passage and find out what Jesus says. Again, it's Matthew 18, 1 through 6. Matthew says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is great and the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the, of the sea. So again, the disciples have this question. They want to know who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And to be specific, they want to know who among them is the greatest. Matthew doesn't bring this detail out, Mark and Luke do. Uh, they'd actually been arguing among themselves, and Mark says that Jesus had to actually ask them what they were arguing about before they very reluctantly asked him this question. So understand, they already assume that they collectively constitute the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. After all, Jesus had chosen them. He had trained them, given them authority to heal the sick and cast out demons. They assumed that this was all more or less a given. They were the great ones. What they want to know is which of them is the greatest. And so they asked Jesus, So who is it? Uh, can, Can you tell us? I mean, who's your number one guy? Who's the most important one here? You can imagine at this point that Peter has a pretty good case to make, considering the kind of praise that Jesus heaps on him after his declaration of faith in chapter 16 of this gospel. But Jesus also issued a pretty strong rebuke then. I He called Peter Satan right after that, so uh, maybe the others think that he's lost that position. James and John could make a pretty case too, in light of, that, uh, light of the fact that they actually got to witness uh, Jesus' glory with Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration. But Jesus told them that they couldn't mention what they saw there, so the rest of the disciples wouldn't really know about any of that. All they know is that Jesus went away with those three for a little bit while. They don't know the significance of that event. So from their perspective, they don't necessarily see why any of them couldn't be number two. I mean, Jesus had given them the same authority as Peter, James, and John, didn't they? Did, he, did Jesus not say that all of them could cast out mountains into the sea? I mean, that means they're all pretty substantial, aren't they? You can just see how they could get into an argument over this. And you can imagine the kind of evidence that they would all present in order to make their case. There's one problem, though. and That's the fact that greatness doesn't work like this in the kingdom of heaven. They're vying for position, for a place of honor. They're arguing about who among them is the most special in Jesus' eyes. And that's not how Jesus sees this issue. That's not how God understands greatness. And so Jesus answers their question. He shows them who the greatest in the kingdom of God is, but he offers a couple of corrections to the way that they're thinking about this entire issue. This is all occurring in a section of Matthew where Jesus is preparing his disciples for life after he's gone. He's teaching them how to live and, and act and what to proclaim while he's away. And that's his, this is his next lesson on discipleship. He shows them what greatness is, how it's valued in the kingdom of heaven. And he does this with two corrections on the concept of greatness. Again, these are two corrections. And the first correction comes from verses 2 and 3. Here Jesus points out that humility is required for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Humility is required for entrance into the into the kingdom of heaven. Again, the disciples want to know who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, but what does that mean? Great. And great can mean a lot of things. Do they mean the most powerful? Like the most advanced disciple, the most mature? I mean, Jesus was just saying that there's nothing impossible For the one who has faith right before this are they maybe wanting to know who among them is the most faithful the one most equipped to perform signs and wonders or do they mean great in the sense of esteem do they mean great in the sense of significant or important or you know do they mean that with reference to god or do they mean it with reference to men i mean they they might say god but let's be honest a lot of times when we're comparing ourselves Uh, We're comparing ourselves to other people, right? We want to know how we stack up against them. That's what we're really concerned about. Are other people impressed? Do they see how important uh, that uh, I am? Are they in awe of me? Do they worship me? Again, we never outright say that, but in our hearts we think it. And we demonstrate that by constantly trying to impress other people, by thinking I wonder what that person thinks of me. If we're trying to answer this question for the disciples, I think we can understand that it's the last of all these. What they're concerned about is their greatness before other people. And you can see that, of course, even the way this question is asked, they don't ask Jesus, "Who is great in the kingdom of heaven?" No, they ask, "Who is the greatest?" It's comparative, meaning they're, what they're concerned about is not personal growth for growth's sake. They're not concerned about their own maturity, how to be great in the sense of advanced as a disciple, nor are they concerned primarily with what God thinks of them. Again, if that's what they were concerned about, then they just say, who is great in the kingdom of heaven? They wouldn't be concerned with comparisons to other people. They'd just be concerned with their own personal greatness in God's eyes and how they could attain it. But what they're concerned about is what other people think. That's why the question is comparative. They're not racing against themselves. They're not seeking to be great in God's eyes alone, to be pleasing to him. No, they're concerned about their greatness in relation to other people. They want to know whether or not they are better than others. That's why they ask the question like this, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And of course, this is even clearer when you take Mark and Luke into account, where we discover that the disciples were actually arguing among themselves who was the greatest. That's the whole point. What they're concerned about is their status in relationship to each other. They're not primarily concerned with personal excellence. They don't want to be great for greatness' sake, to be pleasing to the Lord. What they want is to be the most important, the most advanced. They want to be the top disciple, and they want the other disciples to recognize that So they can use that to lord it over them. I mean, they're all okay with Jesus having first place. But they all want second. They want to be recognized as the most significant of Jesus' disciples. So the other 11 could be oppressed. But, unfortunately for these 12, that's not even how greatness works in the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples are forgetting this point. After all, not only has Jesus already demonstrated quite explicitly that he alone is worthy of every single drop of praise and honor and glory to the three that he took with him up onto the Mount of Transfiguration shortly before this. I mean, not even you know, Moses and, and Elijah are to receive any kind of recognition when set beside the Son. It all goes to Jesus. And God revealed that to at least three of the disciples, right, when Jesus went up to them on the Mount of Transfiguration. But not only has that been demonstrated to those three, but when Jesus, sorry, I'm kind of congested here, today, I struggle getting my words out. But then when Jesus came back down the mountain, he demonstrated to all his disciples with the healing of the demoniac boy that the way they will advance in God's kingdom, the way they will become powerful helpful, even able to do great things, the way that they become in this sense great, he shows them it's not through their own greatness or strength, but through the power of God. In other words, when it comes to the matter of esteem in the kingdom of heaven, the disciples are nothing. They have nothing that's worthy of praise in and of themselves. The only things that they, in a sense, can do or be that can be considered great is what has been given to them by God. And those gifts are given in order to reflect praise and honor back to God. So all the glory in the kingdom goes back to God. No one is going to be regarded as great in the kingdom of heaven but God alone because all are in fact needy. No one is great. All are weak. And this is how God glorifies himself, through the grace that he gives to those who are and who deserve nothing. God magnifies his greatness this way. And the truly mature disciple, they understand this. And really, it's not even just the mature, it's the immature as well. Even the youngest and most experienced of the disciples are supposed to understand this because that is what is actually required for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. You go back to the Beatitudes, for instance, and Jesus introduces the Sermon on the Mount, which was this message about what was required for entrance into the kingdom of heaven with the statement, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He goes on and says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they, and again, the way it's actually phrased there in the Greek, it's they only, that's the emphasis in the Greek. They only shall inherit the kingdom of of heaven. Jesus made it clear that the only way into the kingdom was through humility, dependence, and faith. And in case you haven't noticed, that's pretty much the opposite of greatness. It's the exact opposite of the attitude that asks, so who's the greatest? The one who comes into the kingdom comes recognizing that they're nothing. That's what gains them access to the kingdom. No one can earn their way in because all fall short. The only way in is to ask God to be gracious. And the only one who can do this is humble enough to recognize their own unworthiness. So even the most basic of Jesus' disciples should realize that they have no reason for boasting. Because that attitude is the prerequisite to even enter into the kingdom of heaven. And the most mature disciples, the ones who advance the farthest in the kingdom, the ones who can do impossible things with the power of God, they're the ones who have only deepened in their understanding of this point. The mature disciple doesn't start humble and then through some kind of progress in their faith, become self-reliant, as if they no longer needed God, that would be self-righteousness and sin. No, the most mature disciple starts humble, and then as they grow, and they realize they weren't actually as humble as they should have been when they started, they become even more humble, more dependent. They rest more and more on God. It makes me think of an instance that occurred a few years ago. I was uh, preaching a sermon at another church and a woman came up to me after the service and she said to me, Pastor, I'm so concerned. I said, what's, what's, what's the problem? What's the trouble? She said, I, I don't understand it. I want to get rid of my sin. But I keep fighting it. And it seems like I actually struggle with sin more now than I did 20 years ago am I saved I told the woman listen I, I don't know your whole situation but it's very normal to struggle against sin when you grow in Christ the fact that you feel the weight of sin more now than you did 20 years ago that may actually be a sign of your maturity in Christ not your immaturity There were sins that you probably performed 20 years ago that you didn't even realize were sins at the time. But as you grew in your faith and as you studied God's word, what's happening is you're becoming more and more aware of your sinfulness than what you were when you were first saved. If you're genuinely struggling against sin, then I would gather that that's what's happening. I wouldn't let this realization concern you. If anything, it should comfort you. It shows you that you're probably growing. That's how it works for the mature in Christ. Maturity, true maturity, doesn't result in a feeling of self-sufficiency. It isn't accompanied by self-reliance and self-satisfaction. Instead, it's accompanied by this growing sense of insufficiency, a growing realization of a person's need for God. That's the truth. We're all in desperate need for God, not only as sinners, but, but I mean, really even as creatures. And so the more a person grows into the truth, the more they're going to sense their need. And this means that this whole idea of boasting is actually completely antithetical to the kingdom of heaven. It is entirely incompatible with the very concept of discipleship. To ask who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven and the way that these disciples are asking it, that's like asking how many inches are in an hour or how many dollars can fit into the square root of a football field. I mean, it's, it's nonsense. It's, it's gibberish. There's no such thing as a greatest in the kingdom of heaven, at least not in the way that they're thinking of it. There's no one who is worthy of being esteemed, and the ones who are ostensibly the greatest, the most advanced of Jesus' disciples, they certainly don't think this way. This simply isn't a question that crosses their minds. They neither believe that they are in any way great, nor are they interested in being perceived that way. So the disciples come to Jesus asking, What's two plus two? And really the correct answer is orange. They're so far off, they're not even asking the right question. It's completely backwards. And so what Jesus does is he calls forward this child. We don't know how old the child was. From the wording in the Greek, it uh, could have even been An infant. And he takes his child and he sets him in the middle of the disciples and he says, Do you see this child? (laughs) Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And just like that, he sets it all straight. Children were not honored or revered in the ancient Near East as they often are in our society. They were considered to be among the lowest of the low. And if you want to know why, it's because they're mooches. Right. children are too weak they lack the education or the experience or the strength to offer any meaningful contribution to the advancement of a society or to the survival of a family and don't get me wrong I don't mean to say that they're not smart I don't mean to say that there aren't kids who can do some remarkable things they can there are some incredibly uh, gifted children out there I've had students that I knew were more intelligent than me They didn't have the data to go with it just yet, but it was obvious. They were bright and they were gifted, and one day they were probably going to do something pretty special. But until that day came, they were mooches. That's all I mean. As bright or gifted as a child may be, they don't support their parents, right? I mean, you take even the most extreme cases, you know, you think of like child actors and the like, and they're still dependent on their parents to manage their affairs and drive them to rehearsal or whatnot to make their living. Their parents still enable them to do the things that earn money uh, for the family. So they're still dependent. They can't make themselves survive. They're unable to make themselves survive. And this would have been even the same way and more so in a mostly agrarian subsistence type of society. I mean, you know what kids were then? An investment. An investment a retirement plan again don't get me wrong parents loved and cherished their children just as much then as now in fact i i wonder if perhaps they did even more so because they understood the difficulty and rarity of life i mean forget about having children survive into adulthood it was hard to have them period every single child was incredibly precious at this time in israel but at the same time in terms of worth they had none They didn't contribute anything, at least not immediately. Uh, One day the hope is that they would as adults. You know, they'd be incredibly valuable then, but until then they didn't really have anything to offer. They were, in a sense, useless, worthless, another mouth to feed. Now, I know that sounds harsh, but that was the perception. And if we're being honest, it's basically true. Again, children can't really contribute much of anything to their parents' well-being other than their admiration and love. They're entirely dependent, very weak. And because of this, they're not worthy of great esteem, of great honor, of admiration. So Jesus takes this child and he sets him out in front of the disciples and he says, Guys, Don't you understand? I mean, you have to become like this to even enter into the kingdom. So what are you talking about greatness for? Don't you know how weak every single one of you are? I mean, who is great in the kingdom of heaven and great in the sense that you mean it? Who's worthy of esteem and honor? The answer is no one. Not a single disciple is great in the kingdom of heaven in the way that you mean it. Because every single one is like their child, this child. They're they're completely dependent on their Heavenly Father for their existence. No one should be sitting around thinking about one of my disciples going, wow, they're amazing. No one should be impressed by you because none of you are impressive in and of yourselves. But God, oh, he is quite impressive, and he is good, and he's gracious to his children, and it's the one who realizes all of this and accepts his position as a child, and with it surrenders his reason for boasting. It's that one who will enter into the kingdom of heaven. In other words, kids, I don't know if you're listening or not, but if I offended any of you a minute ago by saying that you were useless, uh, don't worry, it's because your parents are as well, right? In God's eyes, we're all in the same boat. Before God, we're all children. Even the adults here, none of us have anything to boast about. We're all needy. So this is the first correction that Jesus offers in this passage. The disciples want to know who is the greatest. And he answers, well, in the way that you're asking, no one. (laughs) No one. And don't you get it? None of you are great. You're all kind of worthless, actually. And that can sound devastating. Devastating. And in a sense, it is to our pride, right? I I can't think of anything more humbling than what Jesus says right here to the disciples. I mean, do you know that you contribute nothing to God? That's what Jesus is saying here. His existence is not in any way improved by your existence. He's God. He doesn't need any single one of you. He's not impressed. He doesn't admire you. In his eyes, you're nothing more than a little child. And in this sense, you're not great. You're nothing. That can be devastating to our pride. But, and this is where the passage begins to turn, you're not great, but you are loved. And not just some of you, every single one of you who believes on Christ is cherished by God. You may not be valuable in the sense of what you contribute, but that doesn't mean that you're not important in God's eyes. That doesn't mean that you don't matter to him. No, in that sense, every single one of Jesus' disciples is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That's the second correction that Jesus offers in his response. Everyone in the kingdom of heaven is valued and cherished by God. Everyone in the kingdom of heaven is valued and cherished by God. You see this in verses 4 through 6. Jesus says, Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. This correction is expressed through three whoever statements. One in verse 4, another in verse 5, and then you'll see one in verse 6. In the first whoever statement, Jesus says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you notice, that directly answers the disciples' question. They want to know who's the greatest, and Jesus tells them, this one is the greatest. But if you also notice, this status of greatest is not an exclusive title. It's bestowed on whoever humbles himself like this child. So many are able to hold this title of greatest. It's open to whoever does this, not just one or two select disciples. In fact, if you go back to what Jesus said in verse 4, where he said that it was necessary for one to humble himself like a child to even enter into the kingdom of heaven, then the implication is that everyone, every single one of his disciples is the greatest. None are better than the rest. They're all equally great. With the next two whoever statements, you see this greatness expressed and explained. In verse 5, Jesus says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me this is how great each of jesus disciples are in god's eyes they may not be value and this valuable in the sense of their contribution but in terms of their regard they're on par with christ himself to receive one of them is to receive jesus Incidentally, this statement also explains where the disciples' worth comes from in God's eyes. They're precious not because of who they are or because of what they do, but because of who they're associated with. By faith, they're bound with Christ. They are in Him. And because of this, God looks on them as if they possess the perfect righteousness of His Son. This is part of what's so amazing about the gospel. At the cross, Jesus exchanges our sin for his righteousness. And then when the Christian believes, they're adopted into God's family and treated as co-heirs of Jesus Christ. That's where the disciples' worth comes from. It comes from their association with Jesus. And so therefore, every single Christian is regarded by God as great. They're all treasured. They're all important because all have received received the same gift of righteousness. All have been adopted into God's family as sons and daughters by faith. This is why Jesus says that whoever receives one of these children receives him. It explains just how great each of his disciples is and it explains where that greatness comes from. They're all regarded with the same concern, the same affection that the father has for his son. And they're regarded in this way because they've been united with Christ by faith. It's on the basis of this concern and affection that Jesus says, verse 6, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. If to receive a disciple is to receive Jesus, because through faith the disciple has been united with Christ and adopted into God's family as a son or daughter. If God the Father therefore loves each of Jesus' disciples with the same passion that he has for his son, then I ask you, what's going to happen when a person causes even the least of these disciples to stumble? It's not going to be pretty, is it? I mean, God's going to come after them. He's going to be infuriated with the same degree of passion that any loving parent is going to have when someone messes with one of their kids. I imagine you know what I'm talking about, don't you? A parent's love for a child is unmatched. And that's not because of what the child gives them. It's not because of their worth in that sense. It's just because they're one of their kids. They belong to them and they're responsible for them. They they just plain love them. Not necessarily a reason or an explanation for it, other than to say that that's their child. It's a selfless love, but it's a passionate one. And So when a parent sees someone hurting one of their children, and most especially when they're little and helpless and unable to defend themselves, when they can't protect themselves, a parent is often going to be enraged in that situation. Well, it's the same thing with God. He's the dad sitting on the porch polishing a shotgun when a boy comes over to take his daughter on a date. Saying, y'all are going to be home by nine, right? He's like the mom who sees red when she witnesses another boy picking on her son on the playground. That's what Jesus is saying here in verse 6. God has such a deep regard for the well-being of his children that if anyone causes one of them to stumble, well, then drowning at the bottom of the ocean would be a better fate than what awaits them. That is how important they are to him. He cares about them that much. And just so you know, this isn't true of just some of Jesus' disciples, but all of them. Again, whoever humbles himself, like one of these children, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Every single one of God's children is loved in this way. The disciples want to know who's the greatest. And there's no way to answer to this question than to say, well, all of you. All of you are the greatest. All of you are the most important. Parents, if you have more than one child, you can understand this. Imagine one of your kids coming to you and saying, Mom dad which one of us do you love the most and you'd say well all of you there's no most what are you talking about parents love isn't like a pie that's divided up and distributed according to the greatness of each child no it's like if you you love one child with infinite love or i think at the very least the closest that a fallen creature can have for infinite love Because they're your child. And then another another child comes along. And there's infinite love for that child too. I remember actually being concerned about this when we found out we were going to have David. Uh, I had already loved Daniel so much. And when we found out that Emily was pregnant, I almost got kind of worried. (laughs) I started to think to myself, you know, so so am I going to love Daniel less now? Uh, Is there going to be less love to go around? And guys, it couldn't have been further from the truth. David was born, and I discovered that none of the love that I had for Daniel went away. Instead, it was just multiplied. The same love was added to the love I had for Daniel, and it was awesome. Friends, that's how it is with God. Every one of his disciples is important in his eyes. And that's not to say that there may be some who play a more strategic role in his mission based on the gifts that he's given them. You know, a George Whitfield or a Charles Spurgeon may be important to the kingdom in that sense, in terms of its advancement, but not in terms of love or value. All of God's children are precious to him. Do you understand? Uh, You know, Al Mohler or John MacArthur or R.C. Sproul, none of these men are any more valued by God than the 15-year-old boy who's just come to Christ and is ensnared in lust, or the 45-year-old mother overwhelmed with anxiety and fear, Or the 75-year-old saint consumed with selfishness, materialism, and greed. This is why James implores the church, and James 2, to show no partiality with each other in respect to money or other types of external things. It's because we're all one in Christ Jesus, and God loves all his children equally. Isn't that great? God loves us, his love for us depends not at all on what we do for him. Now again, there may be some children who are more or less pleasing to God because of their maturity in Christ, because of their obedience to God's word. But even these have the same value. They're loved just as much as the most rebellious of his children. So you see, every single child in the kingdom of heaven is loved equally because they're all loved on the basis of their relationship with Christ. There's no greatest in in this sense. They're all great. They all matter to God. And with this in mind, I want to very briefly give you a couple of points of application to take away with you this morning. Do you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? If so, the first application is this. Here's the first step. Number one, think of yourself less. If you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, think of yourself less. Greatness comes by thinking less of yourself now by this I don't necessarily mean esteem yourself less in relation to other people like you're some kind of lowly worthless bug in comparison to them I don't even mean think of yourself less often as if the problem is that you think of yourself too much of the time don't get me wrong I think we could probably all stand to consider others as more capable than what we give them credit for. And it's probably true that we spend more time thinking about ourselves than we probably should. But that's not my point here. My point, rather, is that you need to esteem yourself less in your position before God. You need to become humble in your relationship with Him. You need to remember how weak and ignorant and needy you are as a creature. Remember how full of sin you are, how unworthy you are to enter into His presence. You stop and then you think about it. The great men of the faith, the ones that God used to great effect, they didn't regard themselves as great. Nor did they ever try to draw attention to themselves. I mean, Moses, you know, he wasn't overly impressed with himself, at least not when God called him, right? Not later in his life. And David didn't think that he was going to slay Goliath because he was a mighty warrior, did he? John the Baptist, he wasn't concerned with whether or not others knew that there had been no one greater than him up until the time of Christ, was he? Absolutely not. And I think it's fair to say that this is why God determined to use these men so powerfully. To quote Proverbs 27, 21, The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and a man is tested by his praise. That's what these men demonstrated with their humility. They deflected praise. They did not see themselves as great They did not try to direct attention to themselves, and that meant that they were the perfect vehicle for God's glory. So if you want to be great, if you want to be truly great, then humble yourself. Leave behind any hope of glory and admiration and become small in your own eyes. This is what you and I have to fight for, really, I think, in our sanctification, because we don't do this naturally, do we? Our natural tendency is to make some sort of progress in our faith and then to give ourselves some type of credit for it, to boast in it, act like we've become strong. Listen, that's not maturity. Maturity doesn't come with an air of self-confidence. It comes with an increasing awareness of your weakness. It doesn't come with an air of superiority. It comes with the realization that you are, in fact, entirely unremarkable. That's maturity. So if you want to become great in the kingdom of heaven, in the way that God sees greatness, then think of yourself less. Think less of yourself, right? That's the first step. The second step is this. Think of others more. Think of others more. Again, I'm not saying thinking of them more often, though we could probably stand and do that. And I'm not saying esteem them more, praise them, laud them, though we could all benefit from respecting the giftedness of others. I mean value them more. Regard them as worthy, significant, important, because of their position before God. And I tell you, do this most especially of believers, certainly, who are bearers of the name, right? They're especially loved by God. But do this even of unbelievers as well. Remember, unbelievers are deserving of your respect, if for no other reason, that they're image bearers of God. They may be rebellious image bearers before they turn to Christ, but they're image bearers nonetheless, and so they're important. They matter. They matter. Again, that's every single one of them, not just some, every single person simply by virtue of being human is deserving of honor and respect as an image bearer of God. So grant that esteem, that respect, that honor to others, especially for believers, but to every human being as well. That's how maturity in Christ is demonstrated. That's what greatness looks like. In the kingdom of heaven that's how you live a life that's pleasing to God by honoring those who carry his name and showing them unconditional care and love so again I know we've been talking about a lot about the over the past few weeks about competition in the church well if you want to know how to be great in the kingdom of heaven this is how you do it you think less of yourself and you think more of other people The question that you should be asking yourself is not how much better am I than everyone else? How can I show everyone else how great I am? Again, if you're asking that question, you're already off track. You're already wrong. You're clueless about what the kingdom of heaven is really about. The question you should be asking yourself, if you want to be mature, if in a sense you want to demonstrate your greatness, the question that you should be asking is, am I aware of my weakness and need for grace? And do I esteem others? The ones who can answer yes to those questions are the ones who are truly great in God's eyes. Again, they're not great in the way that they can boast, but they are great in the sense that they're valued by God. And when they walk this way, they're also pleasing in His sight. He's delighted in them. Let's close this morning by asking that God would help us to have this attitude in ourselves. Let's pray.